Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 18 on the nature of Middle-earth. Uh, we uh, venture into some fairly deep waters here this evening. That is the uh, chapter on Elvish reincarnation, um, which did not go in the direction I expected it to go, I have to admit. Um, I did not see so much of the like simple metaphysics going on. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I soon found myself wading in waters I was not expecting. So we're going to uh, go through that a little bit together here this evening. Um, um, my goal is to get through chapter 15. Uh, after that, it's two short chapters until the end of part two. Um, but I want to see how much we can do of the Elvish reincarnation uh, chapter here this evening, because that's uh, heavy stuff. <laughs> Heavy stuff. So, and hopefully, maybe you guys can help me with some of it because uh, I uh, will not pretend I found all of this simple uh, and transparent because I definitely did not. Um, but um, anyway, we shall uh, we shall we shall be well. A couple quick things uh, before we start. Uh, first, I just wanted to uh, share with you a couple exciting things that are happening in our space program. Um, we've added two new languages among our languages to learn. Of course, we still have, you know, some awesome fantasy modules coming up and we have uh, some wonderful, uh, we have, you know, you can do creative writing, um, but we have two new languages that I wanted to emphasize too. First, um, we're, we're introducing both ancient Greek and also Old Norse. So if you've ever wanted to learn Greek or you've ever wanted to learn Old Norse, we have both of those as beginning languages that we're offering um, this uh, coming for the for the for the next cycle, so we're offering those will begin those will begin in April, um, but we also have advanced reading courses. So if you have done Old Norse or Ancient Greek before, you know maybe you like went to seminary and learned Greek, but it's been a while and you'd kind of like to brush up on it, um, then you could have a chance to do that. Um, so we're going to have some, like some Greek Ancient Greek advanced reading courses. Um, we're going to probably do like some Greek New Testament and also some classical Greek as well. Uh, so you can kind of go back and forth and, and practice both kinds of Greek. Uh, and of course, the, um, uh, the beginning Greek course will start from the start, right? Uh, assuming no Greek whatsoever. So again, for both levels, the same is going to be true of Old Norse. We're going to be doing a, an advanced readings module on the Volsunga Saga, beginning the Volsunga Saga, probably a series on the Volsunga Saga because it's kind of long. Um, so anyway, those are uh, those are happening. Um, Arthur, I think we we I, 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 it is my aspiration to offer uh, Klingon modules. Um, I think that we can do that. Um, I don't have that lined up yet, but uh, that's still in the future, but I'm hoping for that. Um, anyway, we'll see. But anyway, we are doing Ancient Greek and Old Norse. Wanted to make sure everybody knew about that. Uh, gonna be a lot of fun. And uh, the second thing uh, that I wanted to emphasize today is our upcoming moots, because it is time for regional moots again. Where's my, where's my thing? Here's my thing. Okay. So on our Signum homepage, you scroll down and there's our upcoming events. And we have both Tex moot and Sunshine moot in Florida. So Texas and Florida, both coming up quite soon, March 26th for Austin, Texas, April 2nd uh, for Florida. Um, the registration is open for both of those. So you can uh, click through onto those the here on signumuniversity.org uh, and you can find the links to register and more information about all of those things. Uh, so uh, that's gonna be great fun. I am really looking forward. It's been 
since November, uh, and I can't wait to get back to regional moots again uh, and uh, connect with folks and see folks. Yes, Devorah, I saw you sign up. That was great. Looking forward to seeing you there. Um, so anyhow, lots of stuff happening here. And of course, Mythmoot coming up soon as well. Mythmoot 9 uh, in June, uh, the big event of the year. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, so wanted to make sure to draw your attention to those. And we're... Uh, we're working on it. So anyhow, um, let us get into chapter 15 here. I think we're, yeah, starting right in on chapter 15. So one question. Uh, re you'll remember that this kind of begins with um, questions to, between Manway and Eru, right? Um, and we looked at that a little bit at the end of last time. Um, so actually, one thing I wanted to note, I've been, the slides that I've been doing, I've been pretty much doing them in order. That is, I've, you know, we've been kind of, you know, we're skipping some bits, right? Um, but I've been trying to sort of mostly follow the threads of the, uh, uh, of the chapters as they're presented. Um, I haven't been doing a lot of reorganization of the slides. I did tonight. Um, just because of the way that uh, in chapter 15, we got the like three separate texts. Right. Um, and so I kind of combined them uh, to sort of make the issues a little bit simpler. But OK, here's one. So here's one of the major issues that we're going to be looking at today is like, what can the Valar, what should the Valar do and what can the Valar do? Right. Those are a couple of the questions that are involved here in this whole question of Elvish rebirth. It is clear that the Valar had power and skill among them to form from the substance of Arda anything, however intricate in design, of which they knew and fully perceived the pattern. So how do we make bodies for the dead, the unhoused elves, right? The elves that have lost their Hroar. And one thing that's clear from the start, it's not that the Valar don't have the technology, right? They can make it happen. Um, there's nothing that there's nothing, however intricate in design, that they can't make. The problem is, can they know and fully perceive the pattern, right? But as was seen in the case of Aule and the dwarves, they had no power to give free mind and will to anything that they made. With regard to the dead, however, the living mind of the Fea already existed, and the Valar had only to make for it a house in all things the same as the one that it had lost. This they could now do with the authority of Eru. Remember, Eru says to them, green light. Green light on that, it's fine. You can, you can rehouse the houseless, right? That's fine. Um, so it's so we have the two things that are, one is in their power, one is not in their power. The thing that's just absolutely not in their power, as was illustrated by Ali and the dwarves, they cannot give free mind and will to anything that they made, right? So making a new Fea, Fear are out of their jurisdiction entirely, right? But bodies now, bodies are in their <laughs> bodies are in their power. Sorry, I'm laughing because I just um put my hand in maple syrup. It's a long story. Um, I was on the Friendship Onion this afternoon. I recorded an episode with Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd uh, on the Friendship Onion. And they did one of their, one of their food sketches, uh, one of their food segments, and we were doing maple syrup. 
I have like a bowl of maple syrup right over there. And I just like kind of rested my hand on my book that's sitting right here and put my hand in the maple syrup. I don't usually have this problem on my desk, but today's an unusual day. Um, anyway, okay, sorry, apologies. Um, uh, so, uh, right. <laughs> What was I talking about? Um, right. So, so they can't do fair. Fair are completely out of their jurisdiction, but Hroar are now. So, what's the what's the challenge? What's the problem? The problem is any old body won't do. Right. Um, it's not just a question of. Um, um, it's not just a question of. You know, slap together a body right and shove them into it. Um, there is a bond between the spirit and the body in which they were placed. The particularity of the body is conceptually really important. And in some ways, that is, I think that's an important point that we, we need to make sure we don't skip over at the beginning, because this is an essential element of all of the thinking that Tolkien's going to be doing here in this chapter. Um, you know, you think about there are many other, um, you know, fantasy or science fiction contexts in which, you know, the ability for, um, you know, a mind or a spirit to travel from one body to another, right, to inhabit one body and then get displaced and inhabit another body or something like that. That kind of thing happens all the time, right, in a bunch of, uh, you know, in different kinds of fantasy and science, science fiction. I'm sure that many of you um, can uh, think of examples of, uh, of that kind of thing, um, but with until this is a this is a rule, right? This is a rule in Tolkien's world. Clearly, from the start, there is a. It's not just that the Feya is designed to be housed, right? That's sort of the initial problem, right? Is that we have all these houseless spirits, right? The problem isn't just that they don't have any house. The problem is they're missing their house, right? There is this specific bond that the. Fea cannot be happy if it is not housed, if it doesn't have its particular house, right? So they can make bodies. We know they can make bodies. We saw it with Aule and the dwarves, right? But in order to rehouse a houseless Fea, they have to reconstruct, exactly reconstruct its particular body all the same in every respect. Um, so that's, um, uh, that's the framework. That's the, uh, now they, they can, they can do it. Right. So the challenge becomes, how do they get it right? I mean, they can't eyeball it. Right. They can't be like, yeah, I pretty much remember what they look like. Right. No, no. You have to capture the whole thing. What does that mean? What's involved in that? Right. And that's what he's going to be thinking through. But of course there was another option, Right. There was another option, and that is um, rebirth, right? Either reconstruction or rebirth. Those are the those are the two options. Um, they could be reborn as as babies. They could be reincarnated again. Um, but the involvement of the Valar in that process is different, right? So okay. Um, so here's Eru explaining further. This is in one of the, the, I think it's his text two in the later Fuller one. 
Have ye not seen that each fair retaineth in itself the imprint and memory of its former house, even if it be not itself fully aware of this? Behold, the fair in its nakedness may be wholly perceived by you. Therefore, after this imprint, ye shall make again for it such a house in all particulars as it had ere evil befell it. Thus ye may send it back to the lands of the living. So how do the Valar reconstruct the house exactly? Remake the body exactly? How do they do this kind of retroactive cloning thing? Um, each fair retains the blueprint, right? You can see it if you can... If you know what to look for, you can find in each fair itself the imprint and memory of its former house in every detail. They might not be aware that they have it, right? But you can see it. And notice the important point, which should, I think, jump out at us after our experience in the Asanwe Kenta. Um, Behold, the fair in its nakedness may be wholly perceived by you. That sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? I mean, it's still a will. So but it's now open to them. They can see it. Now, I thought when I first read that, I thought like, wait a second, is, is, is that a contradiction? Is he rethinking the whole, like the unwill is completely insurmountable? Um, or rather, is he deciding that that's kind of a bodily function, essentially, that if you have a fea who is, that is deprived of its body, is now it no longer capable of, um, you know, preventing its, uh, its, 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 you know, is its unwill now, uh, you know, impotent, right? You can read it against its will. That seemed possible. I think we're going to see that that's not the case. Um, but, um, uh, but certainly that seems to be at play here in that, in that sentence. Okay, so you can send it back to the lands of the living. Let this be done soon for the innocent that desire it, soonest for those who suffer death as children, for they will have need of their parents and their parents of them. So like, don't, don't wait around a super long time, right? Um, like if a child dies and a child wants to go back, um, then send them sooner rather than later because they need their parents and their parents need them. Yet if times the choice is committed to the Valar according to the needs of each case and the chances of Arda, great evils and sorrows will come to pass there and it may not always be expedient to send those who have been slain by wounds or grief too swiftly back into the perils that overcame them. As for the wrongdoers, who will, who will increase in Middle-earth? Ye shall be their judges, be their ill deeds great or small. Surely your judgment of the naked fair shall not go astray. Those who submit to you, ye shall correct and instruct if they will hear your words. And when they deem that they have been healed and brought back to goodwill, they too may return in like manner if they wish. But the obdurate ye shall retain until the end, the time and place of each return ye shall choose. Okay, so what is the, again, what is in the hands of the Valar? Remember, this is what Manway is asking, right? Um, this all began with Manway saying, okay, um, dead elves, it's a problem, right? Elves are supposed to be enduring in Arda all the time. Now we've got these dead elves, these houseless elf spirits. They're just going to be hanging out and they can't do anything, right? They can't accomplish anything. Um, it's clearly not right. They were designed to be body and soul together, you know, Hroa and Fea together. They're not. They're just Fea. That's not right. Do they have to just, you know, but what can we do? 
what is cap what are we capable of doing and what are we what's what's okay for us to I, I need a little guidance arrow says Manway right okay so Manway is giving them this guidance notice how he's saying they have discretion they not only have the power to rehouse them that is the capability of re rehousing them it's it's within their power right um it but it's also within he puts it within their judgment when it's a good idea to do that right um and they are the judges of the dead be their ill deeds great or small right um yeah now i agree uh Sinalisha was saying um it could also mean it's possible for them to fully perceive it that is the naked fea but consensually right yes i think so and he's going to come around to saying what sounds something quite like that i think Sinalisha. but at the same time notice how this fits into that third paragraph there right to the judgment process so when a wrongdoer comes to them right not an innocent like not a a child who has died or something like that but a, a wrongdoer right so you know not necessarily just feanor though he comes to mind of course but um um uh but um but any wrongdoer you shall judge them right and notice how here eru adds surely your judgment of the naked fea shall not go astray right you have the ability to judge them and to judge them reliably um for um uh because you can perceive their naked fea now how much how closely is that connected to this question of of unwill um i don't know um I wonder if there's something kind of um, something else that is happening there. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's something else that's happening there in, in the sense that, um, um, but uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I'm half in the Wraith world. Um, and David, it doesn't have anything to do with the maple syrup. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. I could stop the stream and start it again, but I think it was doing that before too. I need to, I don't know what I can do. I, I don't know if it's an internet problem or what. I apologize. Well, if you can, it sounds like many of you can see and hear me okay, and you can get to the Zoom. The Zoom audio is better, I think. So apologies. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, the fair perceiving the naked fair, right. Okay. Um, I wonder if this is a different thing that is uh, different from the unwill issue, right? Remember that unwill, the, the unwill was about sort of the openness of the mind so that you could read everything in the mind. That, obviously that would be useful on a judgment scenario, but at the same time, I cannot imagine that wrongdoers being judged by the Valar are going to by default be like oh yeah no i totally consent like it's 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 fine you know um read me like a book uh it's hard to imagine that qua wrongdoer right they're probably not in that you know mental and spiritual place uh to 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 do that or to want that um but um but yeah i i i think that um there i wonder if there is some kind of other thing 
um, when he's, you know, surely your judgment of the naked Fea shall not go astray. This is Eru talking, right? That seems pretty firm, right? Surely your judgment of the naked Fea shall not go astray. They're not worried about like being able to get, you know, uh, so like proper investigators in to get the, you know, the facts of the case straight in order for them to judge, nor are they only able to judge accurately on condition that the person is willing to open themselves to judgment, right? Judgment is the responsibility of the Valar independent of the choice of the, of the, uh, the wrongdoers. Um, they're here for judgment and correction. Now, um, I wonder, one possibility here, one possibility here is, one possibility here is that there is, Remember, they've come voluntarily. I wonder if going to Mandos itself, right? So they're invited to Mandos. They're not compelled to go to Mandos. I wonder if going to Mandos, if it's like part of the terms and conditions that you sign when you enter Mandos, right? If they choose voluntarily to go to Mandos, does that in fact open them to examination, the examination of their naked fea, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like when you click, like, uh, you know, you're in a Zoom call and somebody's recording it and you have to click that you're okay with the fact that it's being recorded, right? So by entering into the, uh, into the call, you're granting legally permission for you to be recorded, right? Um, is it kind of like how it works when you go to Mandos? You know, that you, by entering Mandos, you are uh, uh, granting permission for, uh, you know, Mandos and uh, any other uh, authorized Vala uh, to... Um, uh, to perceive your naked fea, I wonder. Um, I wonder if there might be uh, something like that. Um, uh, yeah, Stephen, one does hope that they actually read the terms before agreeing uh, with them in that case. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep an eye on this and see if we can get more data about this as we move forward. Um, but okay, <clears throat> let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. Let's think about reincarnation. Here's the dilemma. The, the, I, this was a summary that he gave uh, later on, which is extremely useful. Love the bullet points that he's giving here. Um, here's, here are the issues with Elvish reincarnation in a nutshell. Dilemma. It seems an essential element in the tales, but... Okay, so pause a second. Uh, now... You might be saying to yourself, wait, what? <laughs> you know, maybe if, if you've only read the published Silmarillion, um, you know, if, if you've read the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, um, even Unfinished Tales, right? You may be coming to this discussion saying, wait, elves get reincarnated? Is that even a thing? Right? And here's Tolkien not only assuming that it's not a new idea, but saying that like the big dilemma is that it seems like an essential element in the tales. That seems a strange thing for me, to me, in any case, right? Um, strange and revealing, honestly. Has it been around for a long time? Oh yeah, for sure. It's been around for a long time. Um, we saw it. In the book of lost tales so in our in our discussions of the history of middle earth together we've seen this come up many times right so we know that it's something that he's been thinking about for
from the beginning. And it was discussed prominently early on in Unfinished Tales. And then it kind of receded back such that Christopher suggested in some of his editorial comments that Tolkien was moving away from that. And then he came back to it again in Morgoth's Ring and raised the issue once more. Um, and, uh, and then now it's back again. So if you had read not only the Silmarillion, but all of the history of Middle-earth, um, you could still be forgiven for thinking. I mean, I, everything that we've read and studied together, I'm thinking over that, and I still can't characterize it as an essential element in the tales. What tales, what stories themselves hinge upon the reincarnation of the elves? Now, you might want to talk about Glorfindel, but Glorfindel, he's not even at this point in time decided on Glorfindel, right? So that's, that's not even, in a sense, it's not even a live example, or rather it's an example that postdates this discussion, right? So that's, it's not for the sake of Glorfindel, that he um, um, that he is necessarily that he's necessarily doing that. Yeah, Cecilia, we have things like he walks with his father beneath the trees of Valdemar. Yeah, we get lines like that. But two things there. First, is that essential to the story? Like really essential? I mean, we get that that's a tag on at the end, right? I'm not saying it's you know a meaningless and purposeless line. I'm just saying like we couldn't have the story without that. It's essential, really. But secondly, that itself, it doesn't, we're not talking about rebirth, right? You don't have to get reborn, reborn, like reincarnation we're talking about, right? It's reincarnation that he's saying it is an essential element in the tales, that elves, when they die, are reborn as babies in their family line, right? The thing that I've been joking about for years, right? You know, a mommy elf and a daddy elf love each other very much, and uh, they conceive a baby and they have a baby and the baby is born and they're like, hey, it's grandpa. That's what I'm talking about, right? That's what he's talking about. That's the thing that he is saying seems an essential element in the tales. That elves are reborn as babies in the spirits of their line. Um, uh, so, okay, how is it accomplished? Rebirth? Are we going to do the rebirth thing? Like, you know, look, it's baby grandpa thing? Or remaking of a counterfeit equivalent body when original one destroyed, or both? Okay, one. So, rebirth. Most difficult in result, much easiest to arrange. The most fatal objection is that it contradicts the fundamental notion that Fea and Roa were each fitted to the other. So notice he's, 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 this, that's, uh, you know, as I was suggesting before, a fundamental idea, a fundamental notion to him, right? That it's not just anybody, it is that body, that Hroa and that Fea, which are matched together. And if that's so, then the new baby body, it's not the same body, right? They're getting a new body, same Fea, new Hroa, and that undermines, therefore, this whole idea that the two of them are, are directly suited to each other. Since Hroar have a physical descent, the body of rebirth having different parents must be different 
and should cause acute discomfort or pain to the reborn Fea. The newborn Fea is not going to like its new house, right? Because it's, it's a different house, right? Fea, they are, Fea, Fea are creatures of habit, right? I mean, they've got their house. They've got everything just like they will like it to be. Um, and um, they are not happy with that, right? Um, there are many other objections, he then points out, as a unfairness to second parents to foist a child on them whose Fea already had experience and a character, unless they were consulted. How could they be? Yeah, this was one of the objections that he raised uh, earlier on. I think he talked about this in Morgoth's Ring. Um, pretty hard on the parents, right? Here, they were kind of, you know, for understandable reasons, expecting, you know, their own baby, not somebody else's baby to be born, right? They're like, hey, congratulations, it's your son. Oh, except actually it's somebody else's son, right? Um, it's not even our kid. It's kind of our kid, but it's not exactly our kid. And, and he has all of his memories of his other former life, right? Um, so like he's our kid. And anyway, it's a little unfair, right? Um, you'd think that they'd need to sign you know, permission form for this as well, but how could they be consulted? Who's, who's going to consult them? Because it's not even that Valar aren't even in charge. What, is Eru going to consult them, right? Is Eru going to appear to them in a dream and be like, hey, so um, well, let me float an idea past you guys. What would you think of a recycled baby? Would that be just as good, right? Um, I mean, that's weird, right? That's weird. That's hard. Okay, so that's problem A. Problem B, problem of memory unless identity of personality and conscious continuity of experience were preserved, rebirth would offer no consolation for death and bereavement. Death and bereavement are alien to elves. It's not how they were designed to be. Um, so one of the things driving this whole issue was how can we right that wrong? How can we fix that problem? Um, the problems of death and bereavement. But if you don't, if the, if the soul, if the Fea gets reborn in a new body and just, just reboots completely, right? New body, new memories. Um, so it's the same person in some sense. But in what sense now is it the same person? It retains no memories, right? It has none of the life experiences of its previous life. So um, how can there be any consolation offered for death and bereavement, right? Uh, bereavement. So you're spouse or your child died but don't worry the soul of your child has been reborn in somebody else doesn't remember being your child will never remember being your child um, and you won't ever know who he or she is but somewhere out there the fear of your child is like alive in a different body now with different parents and you'll never see or know not much on the consolation front right? Not really fixing the problems of death and bereavement. So that, that, that's a problem. That's the issue. So that's why having no memories preserved doesn't seem to do anything, right? But if memory were preserved and eventually regained by the reborn, this would produce difficulties. Not so much psychological as practical. The idea in previous considerations of double joy and memory of two youths or springs as a recompense for death is good enough psychologically. And again, he talked about this in Morgoth's Ring. Um, this was like the one kind of beautiful thing that he had, right? Like that 
you didn't, the elves didn't remember right away. So like reincarnated baby elf does not emerge from the womb with all the memories of the previous life, right? They have no, they, they're born a baby and they are, they go through a childhood, um, a second childhood. And then they regain their memories. As I recall, it was something like age 50 ish or something like that. Um, and, um, Oh, uh, Cecilia, the child isn't coming back to you in the in the no memories thing because it doesn't remember you. Like, how would it know to? Um, and like, Arrow didn't promise that he's going to send it back to you. Just that it's going to be. So again, this is the problem with if they don't get their memories back. If they don't get their memories back, then you will never know who they are, and they'll never know who you are. Um, but if their memories do come back, so so again, so the idea was that their memories came back eventually. They would go through a childhood period in which they had no memories of their previous life but we're just building wonderful new memories of their new life, right? Then the memories returned. And when the memories return, they don't lose their memories of their second childhood, right? Um, and it was kind of a beautiful thing, the way that he described it, saying um, that they got to, like, childhood is a blessed time for the elves. And they got two of them. And they received the blessings of the nurturings of two sets of parents. Um, so they received a double blessing. Um, and that that double blessing itself is a kind of um, a kind of uh, 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 recompense, as he says, for death um, and the sufferings previously that presumably led to uh, the death of their old Roa. So note in his parenthesis here, he still likes that, right? The idea um, of a double joy in the memory of two youths or springs as a recompense is good enough psychologically. Psychologically, it works, but practically, practically, there are, there's, there are still practical problems. Like, okay, so now you remember your other parents and your other life. Now what? Right? So you're, you're a young elf, um, still a juvenile elf, right? And your memories are returning to you um, of the former life that you had, the former work that you started and didn't finish um perhaps the former spouse you had been bound to <clears throat> who was bereaved and that's part of the problem that's being redressed here now what um hey i'm like a you know a 10 year old um hi dear i'm home in 10 year old form right um we're still married i guess right? it's weird i guess he said the problems are not so much psychological as practical right not to mention, like, again, like what happens, like, and now what happens with your old parents, right? And how about how you fit into like that family and the roles that you had and things? Um, so it's um, difficult. It's challenging, right? Practical, practical problems of the return of memory. Um, you don't get the memories back, then it doesn't do any good at all. But if you do get the memories back, it creates awkwardness all over the place right so see more more problems but if memory and continuity of personality is preserved as it must be then we must suppose as has been supposed in previous treatments that the reborn fea would assimilate its new body to its memory of the former and would when full grown become visibly as interiorly the same person again let me read that again because sounds kind of complicated but you see this is a big deal and kind of creepy right 
if memory and continuity of personality is preserved as it must be. So like, again, if, if that doesn't happen, then there's no point, right? So you have to preserve personality in order for it to be the same person. It has to have the same personality and the same memories, right? So that's like a prerequisite of even moving forward with this idea at all. But if that's the case, remember the connection between the Fea and the Hroa. He can't get away from that. It's a fundamental notion, right? Um, so when there are babies, they're going to be like, the Fea is going to be like, ah, oh man, this is seriously uncomfortable, right? I'm in the wrong Hroa. This doesn't work. This is not working out, right? So they're going to be suffering as a child. But then as they grow up, they'll get better. But how will they get better? We must suppose that the reborn Fea would assimilate its new body to its memory of the former. And when full grown, would become visibly as interior, interiorly the same person again. So as they grow up, as they grow up, they would um, start to look like the Faya would renovate, right? They're like, we need to like, yeah, no, this is, the, okay, this new Hroa is a bit of a fixer upper. I want my old Hroa back, I insist, right? So I'm going to make it into, so as they would grow up, they would begin to look like their former selves until eventually when full grown, they would be identical to the elf that had died, right? They would make, they would make it over. No, Kendall, I don't think that that means that Mithros would have to lose his hand again. I believe that a reborn Mithros would in fact be a two-handed Mithros. Um, the loss of his hand is one of the difficulties, right? Um, his Thea is not going to be perfectly comfortable in that Hroa anymore. Um, he adjusts. He deals with it, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he remembers his right hand. Um, his Fea remembers his right hand. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, notice that this, um, notice how this relates back to the unfairness to the second parents again. How both the Fea and the Hroa, like the parents, both contribute to the Fea and the Hroa both of the new child, but it, instead this pre-existing Thea with personality and memories gets put into their baby. And not only is its Thea not connected to them because it's, it was just prefab Thea, right? Um, not only was its Thea not connected to the Thea of the mother and the father, but neither is its body in the end. In what sense is it even their child? Um, when it grows up and change its fair, its fair changes its body to be represent to exactly representing the body before, right? It becomes a, it like, you know, forms its, its old self. I mean, it's, um, it's weird, right? It's, it creates a weird situation. Oh, wait, but there's more weirdness. What then of its relations to former kin and friends, and especially to a former spouse? It could only remarry the former spouse. In fact, it must do so. But then there would be a discrepancy of age, and rebirth must be at least swift. 
No time for Mandos to consider how long he should keep them houseless, right? I mean, you, you know, like the, the other one's aging, right? So if they're if you're going to redress the problem of bereavement, you're going to you know get that couple back together again, um, so that you know they could still have the time of children and have their own children, for instance. Well, like I mean, now you're like a multi-thousand year gap, and it's all um, it's all complicated. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, all kinds of problems with the re with the rebirth option here, right? And then also, how could remarriage be arranged for or opportunity of remeeting? That is not remarriage in the sense of marrying a new person, right? But remarrying the same person again. So you know, you're married, your spouse dies, your spouse is reborn five hundred years later, grows up, remembers you, comes back, finds you, right? So this like you know, 11 year old kid comes up and is like, hi, honey, uh, I'm back, right? Gonna have to wait a little bit, not quite ready for the child thing yet. But you know, we'll get there, honey, it's it's fine. Um, what, first of all, like, they've got to meet, first, they got to find them again, right? So like, who knows where they're born. So they're gonna like, have to first go on this life quest to find their old spouse. And then like, oh, yeah, hey, so uh, let's, um, let's get hitched again. Uh, to my new body, right? I know it's a bit of a fixer-upper, but I'm working on it, right? I mean, like, it's uh, challenging, right? It's challenging. Um, I see some of you guys wanting to talk about Muriel and Finway. We are so not there. We are absolutely not. Stop thinking about Muriel and Finway. Um, they're, they're not related to any of this. Um, these are all problems that we have before we even get to the problems of Muriel and Finway, right? We're not talking about like, this, this, we're not, we're not getting to posthumous divorce or anything else yet, right? Um, that, that's a whole new set of problems on its own. These are for people who don't have Muriel and Finway problems, okay? Um, so don't, don't, uh, don't confuse it with the Muriel issue because this is not the Muriel issue. This has nothing to do with the Muriel issue. These issues are for everybody. These are everybody's problems, right? So he wants to say rebirth, it's on the table. Right. And I'm sorry, I'm now realizing in, in context, because I knew he was going to be going off to talk about rebirth the whole time. I made a mistake there at the beginning when he says it seems an essential element in the tales. It's not only rebirth. It's the entire idea of them returning to physical form. Right. The idea that the houseless should be able to be rehoused. Right. That is the thing that he's saying is an essential element in the tales. And there I can almost agree. Um, it's still. I still don't see it as essential in the sense that, I mean, once or twice, it's just, I mean, it's essential to the Baron and Luthien thing, but Baron and Luthien is a bad data point in every regard uh, when it comes to, you know, the rehousing of dead spirits. Um, so that's sort of, um, but yeah, like we just, none of the stories, none of the tales themselves involve re-embodied elves doing something else. Like once an elf dies in Middle-earth, we never hear from them again with the one glaring exception of Gorfindel. But again, we don't have him yet. Tolkien hasn't made up his mind about that yet. Um, remember, you may remember when we were looking at this in um, The Return of the Shadow, when we met Gorfindel in Return of the Shadow. And you may recall 
that we met Glorfindel right after, immediately after he had taken the firewall down, the firewall between this new sequel to The Hobbit that he's writing and the Silmarillion material, the world of the Silmarillion, right? When he decided finally that those two worlds would actually be the same world. And very, very quickly after that, um, we met Glorfindel. Glorfindel seems to be, as I was suggesting at the time, Glorfindel seems to be the last recycling. He'd been recycling, right? Just kind of taking, drawing on elements from, we see him doing this freely through The Hobbit, right? Let's import some Gondolin. Let's do a eh, little Thingol-esque thing, right? Not exactly Thingol, but, you know, we'll kind of take the Thingol concept and, and rework it, right? Um, we've got, you know, dwarf issues and stuff, and it's, you know, there, there are bunches of things. We, we've got a, a, a recycled Silmaril, right? It's not literally a Silmaril, but again, he's taking the concept of the Silmaril and, and incorporating that as an element in the story with the Arkenstone. So, and we see him doing that in the Lord of the Rings too, until he, he takes down the firewall and Glorfindel is immediately after that. And he still seems to be in, in recycling mode. He seems to be recycling. I think, I think Glorfindel was the last thing recycled before he really like got in the swing of what it looks like now that the firewall's like, you can't do that anymore now that the firewall's down. And I think that Glorfindel is like right in that transitional period when he, he had made the decision but he hadn't yet like fully worked through what that meant, you know, for the story. So he recycles Glorfindel. And then later on, clearly later on is like, well, crap, um, that won't work now. Uh, so what do we do? And so he decides, um, uh, he decides that, yeah, it's going to be the same dude. It's going to be the same dude who uniquely returned to middle earth for reasons. Right. Um, but, he had to, in a sense, had to decide that because he painted himself into a corner. Uh, and he painted himself into a corner by, by recycling Gorfindel the way that he did, right? Um, but he doesn't resolve the Gorfindel issue until after, I believe, after he had written this. I'm pretty sure that, I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, so you can't even go to Gorfindel. Um, anyway, I still think, in other words, I'm saying, I still think it's a bit of a stretch to say that's an essential element in the tales. Um, not that elves themselves are immortal, Stephen. That's not what I mean. It is, of course, essential to the difference between men and elves, but there would be a difference anyway. There would be a difference anyway. A difference, between, I mean, because because human souls depart and elf souls don't, right? That's still a major difference, um, even if they don't get bodies again. Um, there are other ways around the issue. I mean, you think about the question that Manway is asking to Eru here, right? There is a potential other answer Eru could have given if Tolkien had wanted, right? Um, he could have said, you know, Manway could have said, gosh, this seems like a problem. They're houseless now. The fair are houseless. And what, what can they do? Um, an answer could have been, yeah, don't worry about it. They'll be fine, right? Yeah, they can like uh, learn to cope, <laughs> basically, right? Like they can, they, I, in other words, like if he, he didn't have to insist on this bind, this, this, this um, binding between the, the fair and the Roa, it's not in like utterly inescapable. I mean, he says it's a fundamental notion, right? Yeah, I mean, he's decided it's a fundamental notion, but he didn't have to. Like there's no gun to his head on that point, right? Um, he could have said, so in Valinor, the spirits after a time of their time of correction and instruction and Mandos, they can 
they can go on furloughs, right? And yeah, you know, they're still kind of ghosty, but it's okay. You know, you can still hang out and talk with them. And or or he could have, you know, he could have said like, when they can, maybe they can manifest a form like the Maiar temporarily or like for brief times or something like that like I, i'm not saying those things aren't true right he didn't say that i'm saying he could have like it's not it's, he's not nothing external is forcing him into this conclusion right um but but he does have this this fundamental notion i emphasize this just because i don't want to i don't want to miss this right um there are times we saw this with the orc issue right we saw this with the orc issue when Tolkien gets a sort of metaphysical or theological concept, like when he gets the bit in his teeth with a particular theological issue, he's dogged. He, he, he holds on to it, right? That's what created the orc issue, right? He was not willing to compromise the idea that evil could not create real creatures of its own. And so the orcs could not just be constructs in the way that he had originally conceived of them. And hence we have the orc problem. Um, by the way, I was just talking about that with uh, when I was doing the Friendship Onion interview today. They asked me um, what question I would ask Tolkien if I had a chance to ask a question. Uh, and uh, I told him, I said, I, I would, it's not exactly a specific question, but I said, I would, I would really want to just talk through the orc question with him. Um, because, you know, all the different things he wrote and the, he wrote and the different thoughts he had, I'd love to sit and talk about it and see like you know hear him kind of put things together and and see what he really insisted on and you know see if we could see if uh see if we could sort it out together or something i don't know that would that was and and you know the they uh billy and dom definitely agreed that we would need a, a number of pints uh in order to get through that discussion um but um anyway okay so uh anyway I just want to emphasize this fundamental notion. Everything we're going to read in this chapter is contingent upon that fundamental notion of the intimate interconnection, the essential interconnection between the Fea and the Roa. And we, and, and we need to realize this is the, the basic premise that is driving all of these questions. So, since that's the case, the other options I was just suggesting, remaining a Fear or being able to manifest a fake body like the Maiar can do or whatever, not on the table, not possible, right? Not possible. And since they're not possible, there are only these two options, right? Well, three, essentially, right? Either the elves remain forever houseless, which if that's the only option for any elf, is unsatisfactory as Manway explains, you know, in his uh, in his appeal uh, to Eru. Um, and so if it's going to be solved, these are the only two options. And these are all the problems with the rebirth issue. So a little bit more on the rebirth. Here's what he said in one of the other passages about the rebirth issue. As for rebirth, according to kind, uh, uh, note, Tolkien is using the word kind in its old sense. Um, when the word kind in English was a synonym uh, to the word nature. Kind, uh, natura is a Latin word, right? Um, but the old um, non-Latin 
way, a non-Latinate way to say that was kind. kind. Um, so according to kind means according to nature, clearly here in this, uh, in this case. As for rebirth according to kind, those who choose this must know fully what this meaneth. And the time of return shall be in my will. This is still Eru speaking. The time of return shall be in my will, which they must await. Okay, so we awkward to get the consent of the parents, but the kid has to consent, right? The one who's being reborn has to know what they're in for. Okay, you're going to be reborn. You're going to have a second childhood. That's actually going to be fun. You'll enjoy that part of it, right? But afterwards, it's going to be a little bit awkward. You know, just make sure you're braced for that, right? Okay, and the timing is up to Eru, right? The Valar don't get to decide that, nor, of course, the elf spirit itself. Um, for understand that, as hath, as hath been said, each Fea retaineth the imprint of its former body and of all that it hath experienced therethrough. That imprint cannot be erased, but it may be veiled, though not forever. Okay, so it has its memories. It, it's, it won't lose its memories, though I'll still be there, including the entire blueprint of the old Roa, right? The original Roa, it's Roa, it's one unique Roa, all that stuff will be there, right? But it can be veiled. You can, you can cover it over for a little bit, temporarily. Okay, so you've got the veiled memories. That imprint cannot be erased, but it may be veiled, though not forever. Even as each Fea must of nature Remember me, from whom it came, remember Eru, right? Yet that memory is veiled, being overlaid by the impress of things new and strange that it perceives through the body. He's just dropped another really interesting piece of theology on us there. Did you notice that? Eru just drops that. All Fea, every Fea must of nature Remember me from whom it came. All of them remember Eru from whom they came. But that memory is veiled. So they, they're not born remembering God, remembering everything about God. But they know it. Their Fea knows it, but it's veiled. Like in the case of a reincarnated elf, the memories of their previous lives, right? So the memory is veiled, being overlaid by the impressive things, new and strange that it perceives through the body. So it's, it's receiving new impressions, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, its surroundings are, uh, are affecting it in new ways, right? Um, and those in new impressions that it's receiving from its environment are overlaying that deep Thea memory of Eru from whom it came, right? So it shall be that for a fea reborn, all its past, both in life and in waiting. So it remembers its time in Mandos too, notice. Both in life and in waiting will be veiled and overlaid by the strangeness of the new house in which it will awake again. New body, new experiences, new sensations, right? Those are going to take, you know, those are going to be the front seat there for the early part of its life, for the reborn shall be true children, awaking anew to the wonder of Arda. You know, so the reincarnated baby is not gonna wake up with like, uh, uh, you know, already knowing what its favorite foods are, right? Um, already, uh, you know, 
uh, it, it doesn't already have its favorite sports team picked out, right? Um, it's awaking anew to the wonder of Arda. In this, the dead who are reborn shall find recompense for their injuries in the second childhood, remember. But let those who desire rebirth be assured of this. Memory of the past will return, slowly maybe, and fitfully, as by strange hints and, and monitions, or by knowing things unlearned, the reborn will become aware of their state, until even as they become full grown, and the Thea cometh to its mastery, they will recall their former life. So it's not like, you know, they hit puberty and boom, they remember everything, right? slowly and fitfully as by strange hints and monitions or by knowing things unlearned you'll just sort of one day you'll you know pick up a harmonica and you're just able to play and you're really good and you're like when did i learn to play the harmonica i just feel like i've always known how to play the harmonica right and it's that will be a way in which you discover you know a part of the past of your harmonica playing life um uh yeah yeah um yeah this uh of course is yeah and so druids fire you're absolutely right what we do not get in reincarnated elves and i was thinking about it. i didn't say it before but i was thinking it um we don't get uh uh Aaliyah the abomination from doom right um we don't get paul's little sister uh who as a baby you know, has all of these adult memories, right? No, that's that we that that's exactly what does not happen, right? For the reason, like remember, one of the serious consequences um, with Aaliyah is she doesn't have a child. She doesn't get a childhood, right? She doesn't get a childhood. She's a she's an adult from her infancy, right? Um, and that messes with her very, and she's horribly deprived of a childhood, right? Um, and that's exactly. What Tolkien is anticipating, right? So he's not responding to Dune here, um, but he is exactly anticipating um, exactly that kind of situation. That is exactly what he's saying does not happen. And it's a blessing to them that that does not happen, right? But eventually they remember. Um, is this in Boethius? Yes, this is in Boethius, but Boethius is just referring to Plato where this comes from. Um, in particular with God, a full Platonic doctrine is, um, uh, is here. Um, I'm trying to remember what philosophers call this. Anyone who has more philosophical training than I, which is a low bar, let me tell you, um, will know the and can maybe help me with the phrase that I don't remember of what this is called. Um, but it was a Platonic doctrine. Plato taught that um, before everybody, before they were born, before a, before a human spirit is embodied in the flesh, they're like given a tour of the cosmos. They're, they're given like a, the guided tour. They, 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 they know everything, right? So Plato says, we don't learn things, we remember them, right? Um, uh, he has this whole like flipped way of looking at experience, right? And growth in knowledge and understanding. Um, it isn't that we start off knowing nothing and um, need to figure things out from scratch. Our souls start knowing everything. And then when they are connected with the flesh, that's veiled. We lose it. We forget it all. But it comes back to us. Um, 
And that seems to be, to me, transparently the doctrine that Tolkien is applying here, in particular where it relates to mem memory of Eru himself. They of must of nature remember me, yet that memory is veiled. And that seems to me an almost, and again, it's not, he's not doing it within exactly the same terms. There's the word anamnesis. I knew there was a, fa a fancy Greek word that I didn't remember. Anamnesis, the doctrine of recollection. Yeah, the theory of recollection. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, he's, do you see how he's uh, embedding that? In the middle of this. On the one hand, he's using it as a parallel, almost. No, explicitly. Arrow is drawing a parallel, right? Um, so he kind of drops the concept, the concept of anamnesis, um, <clears throat> this, this doctrine of recollection. Um, he drops that, uh, and thank you guys, I knew, I knew you guys would, would, would know more than I did about that. Um, he drops that doctrine on, just on the side as an illustration of this like granted this happens right um all Fea remember eru but the memory is veiled and then uh that knowledge is recalled right um they come to an understanding but it's not getting to know eru from scratch it's remembering that which they always knew but which they had forgotten which had been veiled and so he's like you know everybody i mean everybody knows that right um and like that is the new reborn elf remembering all these other things. Um, so that's, um, uh, that's pretty, pretty interesting that he just kind of dropped that there um, in the middle. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so notice this speech by Eru is Tolkien trying to make it work, right? All of those, like that, that outline that he gave before, um, none of this solves the second parents issue, the unfairness to the second parents. None of this solves the awkwardness of the remarriage to the original spouse, which is like mandatory. Uh, mandatory. And notice like, <laughs> you know, heaven forfend, the original spouse has moved on, right? Uh, and gotten over her bereavement or his bereavement. And then the spouse comes back and is like, hey, we're still married. Like, let's get our new bodies re You know, it's like, you know, I'm going to let's get, get rehitched with my new body, right? Since our fair are, are like still married, again, like so much potential for awkwardness. None of that gets addressed here. Um, but um, uh, none of that gets addressed here. But we um, we can see him kind of feeling it out, like right? trying to see, you know, as we get this longer, more, much more detailed speech from Eru than we got in that first text from Eru, um, uh, we can see him trying to think it through, right? And trying to, to, to feel it out. How would it work? Now, do you have to forget Eru in order to retain your free will? Is that why Frank asks? I don't know, Frank. I'm not sure if that's necessarily, if that's necessarily why, um, perhaps in some ways. I mean, it is, um, I mean, it's interesting that you ask that, Frank, because I do, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of Eru's own rule about how you can't overwhelm the wills of the incarnates, right? If the, 
Valar did wrong by taking the young elves to Valinor and saying, hey, look at the bliss and splendor. What do you think of this? And they're like, whoa, I am totally, yeah, into this. What else were they going to say? Like, and again, he, he was like, it, it, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You did not leave their wills perfectly free. You didn't dominate them. You didn't enslave them. You didn't compel them. But you totally overloaded them, right? I mean, how could they have... Uh, you created a situation in which in order not to come to Valinor, they would have had to rebel against you, which is not good either, right? Um, but yeah, I wonder if the same principle does apply here. Maybe it does. My first impulse was no, but I'm kind of coming around, Frank, to that idea. If each Fea awakes with that full knowledge of who Eru is, like they of their nature remember Eru, right? And they know him and who he is and what he's like. Um, that would seem a little overwhelming, perhaps, to their wills, right? Um, and instead, that memory is then veiled so that they can, through their lives and through the, <clears throat> the impress of things new and strange that it perceives through the body, come to a recollection of that, right? They, they can rediscover their knowledge of Eru. Over, they'll be given an opportunity to rediscover that over the course of their lives. But the difference would be that then their wills are freer as they grow and mature and gradually grow back up into that knowledge. Um, but it's going to, so, so then Frank, the follow-up question, right, would be, so why do it at all then, right? Like if it leaves them more free and that's the rule, right? That's how he wants this to, to go, um, uh, that they not have that overwhelming, why give it to them in the first place? Why give it to them and then veil it, right? What's the point of that? Um, if leaving them free is the better thing in the long run, well, but you can kind of see why, right? I think, I think we can see why, because the quality of the rediscovery is different. Um, it means that when they do rediscover it, when they do achieve recollection, yeah, that experience is gonna be different than merely learning something new, right? Discovering something that is genuinely outside themselves, right? They will have a much more gentle prompting, right? From within, um, a, a deep sense of, yeah, this is, this is true. This is right. This resonates in my fea because my Faya knew this all along. I'm now just realizing that my Faya knew this all along, right? So there will be a kind of affirmation, a kind of confirmation in that, um, but not of the overwhelming kind, not you know breaking that particular axon about uh, overwhelming the mind and will. Um, so yeah, Frank, I think I've talked myself around to being wholly convinced <laughs> by, your, by your suggestion. I don't know that that's necessarily the, you know, the only or the entire reason, but that certainly, um, that certainly seems to track for me. Brian, exactly, especially since um, uh, they're fair, we're young and inexperienced. Again, that issue with the, with the Valar, right? And so how much more so for like a toddler, right? Uh, a toddler confronted with the memory of the transcendent god right like that's okay maybe you know on the overwhelming side 
um, uh, no, Anna, the indecisive, I don't think so. I don't think that's true. I don't think that belief in arrow, belief in arrow is definitely a matter of free will for the elves. Well, now, now it's hard in him. On the one hand, I resist any idea that the elves will is less free in some sense. Um, it's not less free in some sense. Um, we, he was very explicit about the fact that the will of the elves is free. But he also does say none of them simply reject Arrow. Like there's a, um, I don't think there are any atheist elves. Um, that doesn't seem to be a thing. Or at least, no, he doesn't say that. He says that there are no elves who fully open their wills to Morgoth, right? Not just kind of agree to work with him under certain circumstances for certain ends, but really open themselves to Morgoth. We were talking about this at the end of the Osanwe Kinta um, discussion. That's the line that he said elves never cross. Um, but I would point out another thing here, Anna. Um, he's talking about elves. The context of this is talking about elves. But I'm not positive that that aside, that illustration that Eru gives, even as each fea must of nature remember me, I'm not sure that that applies only to elves. I think that applies to humans too. Each fea must of nature remember me. Human fear come from Eru just like elfish ones do. They're of a different kind, right? There are differences between the fear of humans and of elves, of course, and the bodies and the relationship between the bodies and the, and, and, and the fear. But, um, but that statement, even as each fear must of nature remember me, all the rebirth business is about elves. I'm not sure that statement is just an elf rel relative statement, right? Um, again, Eru is appealing to a different and general principle, which he is then applying as a, as a, as a, as a, as a model, right? Um, he's, he's making a parallel to that principle. Just as all fair know me, and then that knowledge is veiled, and they only recall it throughout their lives, anamnesis, you know, Plato's anamnesis, um, so too, just like that, elves, when they're reborn, have their memories of their former lives veiled. That's what Eru is saying there. Right. So I think human fair, I would take Eru to mean in that sentence that human fair do that too. It's also true of human fair that they by nature must of nature remember me. And the primary reason that I would say that um, is it's Catholic doctrine too of humans. I mean, um, that's Romans one stuff. Um, I, it's a uh, Anamnesis is in Plato. It's also in Paul, who had read Plato as well. Um, but um, it seems he had read Plato, probably had read Plato. I shouldn't be too confident about this kind of thing. I don't know. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, again, that jives with Catholic doctrine as well. So I believe that that statement does apply to, to so, the, so again, I don't think that that can be used to say um, that they're kind of more free in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Oh man, Frank, that's a really cool point uh, about um, till we have faces. Um, I don't even, I can't, I can't go there. Addressing your comment is going to take me on like a, a a forty-five minute tangent discussing till we have faces, and I cannot yet indulge myself. Someday, someday, till we have faces, we'll win the election. It's been a bridesmaid several times. Someday, till we have faces. Uh, will win the election and we will read together and discuss the greatest work of fiction that C.S. Lewis ever wrote by a country mile. Um, and he wrote some good stuff, but Till We Have Faces is next level stuff. Um, but it is not this day, <laughs> so I should, I should keep going. Yeah, good, good. Uh, Alyssa points out that in the in the Osanwe Kenta, uh, there's a passage about uh, that no mind can claim it didn't receive the message. They have to be aware of Eru, even if they choose not to admit Eru's message. Yes, exactly. Their wills are not bound to accept Eru, um, but they they know. Um, and in that sense, Anna, uh, and I, I don't know, and I don't know how to exactly to pronounce your name. Um, in that sense, Anna, um, I think it's we can see there perhaps a distinction. Um, I think maybe it's more possible for a human to go through their comparatively short lives. Like how far does the, the, the anamnesis process get? How far does the recollection get? Um, is it possible for a human to live such a life that they, all, that they rarely, if ever, come to any recollection of their you know, knowledge of Eru? I think that is much easier, much more likely to happen to a human than it is to happen to an elf over the course of millennia. Um, and so in that way, I think there, it would seem to me logical that their experience of that phenomenon between elves and men would be different, right? Um, uh, uh, but, um, but that still doesn't mean that elves' free will would be constrained to accept it. Um, just that I, I, I would suspect that an elf could not um, go through his or her entire life simply not like acknowledging that, you know, in the way that a human kind of can. All right. Nonetheless, because of this danger in returning memory, I counsel you that not to all the houseless shall ye offer this choice of rebirth. Because like when memory comes back, it, it, it can get weird. Here's Eru trying to address some of those practical issues. Let's see how this goes. In the first place, those who are to be reborn, you should judge to be wise. Ah, so there's a prereq, right? Um, don't, uh, uh, don't, don't line up any fools for rebirth because they're probably going to make a hash of it, right? Make sure they A, know what they're getting into and B, you think they're going to be able to handle this. They should be wise. Also, it were best that they should be the young in death who have not had long life nor formed binding ties of love or duty with others. Okay, so let's try to escape some of these practical issues, like um, preferably children, right? Uh, children are good candidates for the wise, wise children, good candidates for this if they didn't live long, didn't form, you know, they, like, so preferably the, the, the unmarried, right? That'd be, will make it a little easier, right? We'd avoid a whole bunch of the problems. Um, duty, right? So let's not have somebody who's, say, king, right? And then dies. And then comes back a thousand years later and is like, hey, okay, I'm back, King's back, right? What's going on? Again, awkward, awkward all over the place, right? Awkward for everybody. Um, in no case shall they be those who are wedded. All right. So Eru is like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut. It's just 
I'm banning married folks. Now notice what has happened as a consequence. And when Arrow bans married folks, now the idea that rebirth could be a consolation for the bereaved out the window, right? It's no longer on the table now. I mean, you can have bereaved parents, but you can't any longer have bereaved spouses anyway, right? So that one major category of bereavement is, is, uh, is, is uh, off the table. For the reborn could not return to their former spouse, neither could they take another. Marriage is both of the body and of the spirit. Therefore, those who have a different body cannot resume a union made in another body. So notice here's Arrow exploring the full awkwardness of the re quasi remarriage situation, right? So kid comes to former wife and says, hey, honey, I'm back. Good news is I'm back. Bad news is new body. So we're only half married right now. Like our fair are still married to each other, but you're not married to this body, brand new body. So we need to get remarried and you need to remarry this body, but you have no choice. So on the one hand, we've got to make the remarriage step because you're not married to this body. But on the other hand, we have to make the remarriage step because you're still married to my, my, my spirit. So awkward. Anyway, but since they're the same person as before who was wedded, they cannot take a new spouse. For identity of person resideth in the fea and in its memory. So we are married, except we're sort of not. It's weird. This unnatural state shall not be permitted. So yeah, he's like, well, please, let's just not deal with this, can we? If there are any who, having heard these things, still desire rebirth, right? being fully aware, uh, being briefed on the full awkwardness of this potential situation, if you're still into it, say to them, it lieth with the Luvatar. We will present your prayers to him. If he denies you, ye shall speedily know, and ye must be content with other choice. If he assents, he will call you in due time, but until then you must abide in patience, because the timing is in Iluvatar's hands. Um, okay, so this was his, again, his later attempt to kind of work through some of those problems, but you can see, like, even as Eru is explaining it, the problems are are like he's giving the problems new shape. Um, he's spelling out new, like that whole business about like the half marriage thing he hadn't even been thinking about before, right? Um, so uh, yeah, like you're married to my spirit, but you're not married to my body. I mean, deeply strange. So he hadn't even thought about it in those terms. And here's Eru thinking it through and being like, yeah, okay, it's, um, it's, it's cranky. It's a it's a cranky system. Uh, but if they, you know, if they insist, we can put them in the we can put them in the in the line, right? We can put them in the queue, um, and then we'll see. Anyway, it's um, you can see how on the one hand, but again, the thing I would draw attention to, he's doing this, like he's writing this, he is well aware of all of these problems, and yet he's still trying to solve them. He's still trying to resolve the issues here. He doesn't want to give up on Elvish reincarnation. This was his original idea. Um, he knew, he wanted, he did think it was essential to the tales from the beginning that elves should remain active in Middle-earth, not just be ghosts haunting Mandos uh, for the, you know, most of the life of Arda. He wanted elves to be actively engaged with Arda. Um, that was, that concept was essential. If I would quibble, not essential to the tales themselves, essential to the world building, right? Um, 
and his original concept was rebirth. He's now thought better of it, but he's not thought so much better of it that he's not still trying to make it work, trying to see if it's possible, uh, giving, it a, giving it a test run here uh, in the conversation of Eru uh, to see if that will be able to work out. I think it's not. Now we get um, at the end of his, the dialogue here, he trails off into Q&A, right? Um, still thinking through, still trying to think through issues, still trying to feel it out. Here are the two questions that he asks himself and his answers, fortunately. Is it lawful for one of the, no, I'm not saying it's the Eru's questions for him with himself. This is Tolkien uh, trailing off from the actual dialogue he was writing, um, but still trying to brainstorm these questions. Is it lawful for one of the dead to summon another from the living, such as a beloved spouse, Tamandos? Whoa, right? So husband dies, wife is still alive in Middle-earth. They're separate. That's a problem. Well, getting the husband back to Middle-earth and, and reconnecting, problematic, right? Solution, bring her over, right? Let's do the, let's hold the reunion in Mandos, right? Problem solved, right? So could the husband be like, man, this bereavement thing, it's horrible. She's awful sad over there. I'm awful sad over here. Can we just get reunited over here in Mandos, right? Can I, can I summon her over to here? Is it lawful? Answer, unlawful were it possible, both unlawful and also impossible. For the dead, if innocent, may return to those whom they love. If guilty, they may not meddle again with the living, not at least until they are cleansed. But they cannot summon any of the living unless through the Valar, and this the Valar must refuse to do. Now, keep in mind, this would be even more tempting if the spouse was in Valinor, as might be. Again, still not thinking about Muriel. Don't start talking about Muriel. Still not thinking about Muriel yet. I'm talking about happy, unproblematic marriages, right? Uh, so uh, let's take, um, uh, let's take two to Larry, right? Husband still alive in Alquilande, wife killed in the Kinslaying, right? She goes to Mandos. There she is in Mandos. He can go like, I mean, visitation hours? Can we get visitation hours in Mandos, right? Is that too much to ask? The dead one, can she be like, can you please let my husband in, you know, at least maybe two to three hours on alternate Tuesdays or something like that? Can we, can we, can, can, can we do that? Answer, no, 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 no. Can't be done. Can't be done. They're not allowed to meddle again with the living. If they're guilty, if they're innocent, they can go back. It's cool. If they're guilty, they can't meddle again with the living until they've been cleansed. They've got, they've got issues. They got to work through their issues. Then we can figure things out, right? They cannot summon any living. Only the Valar could facilitate that connection. And they must, ref this they must refuse to do. Must. It's like an axon right there, right? Um, yeah, okay. Um, exactly, Arthur. This is not an issue for Muriel because she's quite satisfied with the separation from her husband, apparently. Um, okay, question number two. Is it lawful for two wedded persons 
or others that are bound by love. Both or all of them, that is, you could have multiple people bound by love, to remain in Mandos together if death shall have brought them thither together. Okay, so you've got a couple who both die, right? Like, you know, they sink in the same boat or something, right? Um, can they hang out in Mandos together? Can they stay there together? They're both in Mandos now, right? So you're not, you're not crossing that barrier, bringing living people into Mandos, right? So they're, they're, they're both in Mandos. Can they just stay and hang out? Um, you know, could they not choose? Could they choose, sorry, could they choose not to return in the body and be like, no, it's, it's okay. I, I want to, I want to hang in Mandos with, you know, the missus. Um, we're fine here. Uh, is that lawful? It is lawful. They may not be compelled to return. The, the return is always in the choice of the elf, right? The free choice of the elf. They have to want to return to the body. Um, if they want to, they can, but they don't have to. They could always opt to stay for whatever reason. But if they have duties to the living as parents to children, maybe, then ye may dissuade them from abiding with just argument. So if there are other living people who need them, it might be selfish for them to choose to stay in Mendoza. There might be good reasons for them to come out. So you can argue with them. You could counsel them and say, are you sure that's the right choice? Right? I mean, poor Junior, you two went down on that ship and poor Junior's been living on his own, right? Um, uh, you know, maybe you have twin kids and you're separated by a functionally infinite distance from your children and like maybe they need you, right? Oh, sorry, Elrond, too close to home there. But anyway, um, you might, so, but they could try to talk them into it. If it, if the Valar are convinced that it really would be the right choice for them to go back, that they have duties that they would be shirking. Remember, their job, when the souls are in Nandos, their job is to teach them. Their job is to instruct them and advise them and heal them, right? So helping them to make good choices is part of their purview. Not only is it part of their purview, it's part of their duty, right? Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, Stephen is wondering, does just argument, it says that you may dissuade them from abiding with just argument. Does that mean fair argument or only an argument? Fair. I don't, just argument, I don't think, in like the, the idiom that Tolkien is writing in here, like the kind of syntax that he's using, kind of syntax and vocabulary he's been using throughout here, even in these notes. Um, I don't think with just argument, would he, I don't think he'd be using that in that sense, in this context. Um, I would, I'm, I'm almost certain that he would mean with argument that is just. Um, in other words, it would be unlawful for you to trick them into it, for you to like guilt trip them or be passive aggressive or um, like you can't, if, if the argument in favor of their returning is a just argument, then you may attempt to dissuade them with that. But only if it is a just argument, like you can't, 
if you, for some reason, you're a Val or you're a Maya, whoever you are, um, you know, you've made up your mind that you think they should, you know, like maybe you know the kid, right? And you're like, man, I feel bad for that kid. That kid really wants his folks. I'm going to go try to talk his folks into going back, right? Um, you, you, it would be unlawful for you to do that unless you were sure that there really is you have to have the wisdom to discern whether or not that would be the right thing in fact for them to do you need to have a just argument that you could give them so i'm pretty sure that that's the sense in which he he means about that um yeah cool so cecilia this is a great question um why is eru talking about the valar plural as judging correcting all the rest of the stuff namo is supposed to be in charge of um yeah so I don't think he's exactly demoting Namo, you know, Mendos here, but I think it's pretty clear that these considerations are over Mendos' solo pay grade here. Um, just because he's the one who runs the facility doesn't mean that he has to make all of those calls himself. Um, these are big questions. And all of the Valar are interested in this question. And I use the word interested consciously in its older sense. They have an interest in this question. It matters to them. It's relevant to them. It's not just, this is not just a Mandos issue. It's not them all uh, sticking their noses into Mandos's business, right? And Mandos sitting there like, oh, come on, people. Like, ser seriously, like, Omo, am I, am I messing with your oceans? Come on, leave the dead to me. Would you, would you please? Like, I, I don't see Mandos making that argument at all. Um, Mandos is in charge of the facility, right? Um, but he is not the one who is tasked. This, this is a big job, um, discerning um, questions like this, like who is, uh, um, even, even the healing of all of the elves. It's not just something that Namo himself does. Um, and Cecilia, when I say this, my saying this is being informed by this passage. Um, I think if you had asked me, you know, a month ago, is um, judging the dead and counseling and healing the dead Mandos's job? I'd have said, yeah, of course that's Mandos's job. But after reading this in particular, um, I can... I think I can begin to see Mandos's job in a, in a kind of a new way, or rather what I see is that those responsibilities to those individual elvish souls goes beyond the purview merely of Namo himself. Um, that now seems a little clearer based on this. Um, and I don't think it contradicts anything. I don't think that that necessarily means we're changing Mandos, right? We're changing Namo. Um, we're demoting him, right? We're, we're, we're totally nerfing Namo right now. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think it does. Um, I think this is a, a sort of a development that um, uh, it's a development that inform, does inform it, does, does, does alter it but I don't think change, it, it introduces some distinctions 
that were never made before because it's sort of inviting questions that weren't really being asked exactly um, earlier on. So, um, yeah, yeah. But, but Cecilia, that's a great, great question. <sighs> okay. Let's have a go. Let's get started. I got 10 minutes left and probably, by the way, it looks like my internet has recovered. So I hope everybody's picture is clearer now. Um, uh, but as you know, it's Wednesday night and you know how my internet provider likes to reboot its system at 12.06 uh, a.m. Eastern time. Um, so yeah, we're getting into the ontology part here, Ilana. And I'm nervous about starting at 10 minutes before the end of class. Let's see how far we can get into this first slide. Start setting the stage here and then we'll pick it up next time. And then next time we're totally finishing part two. It's happening next time. Absolutely happening. Okay. Let's talk. So we're now leaving the rebirth question completely aside. All the rest of the considerations are going to be about the reconstruction, right? So rebirth has all these problems. So the better solution is remake the body, right? Um, they have the imprint of the body in their fear, read the blueprints, construct, you know, reconstruct and retroactively clone them, right? And put the fear in the new house and it's all good, right? That has very few of the practical problems, right? Um, most of the problems that were introduced, not all, some of them are still there, but most of them are gone with this. So what's the issue? We don't get into the kind of um, potentially psychological, certainly practical problems with rebirth. Why, what, what's the issue? What issue does Tolkien feel the need to go through? And the answer is, how is it possible? What we begin to see in, this, in these slides of which this is only the first, um, this set of slides on the, the reconstruction process. Um, what we begin to see, the spoiler, I guess I would give, we begin to see exactly how, when I say, or when he says, it is a fundamental notion that the Fea and the Hroa are bound together, that the Fea are, uh, the, the Fea are of, 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 Elves, we're talking about elves, but the fair of elves relate to a particular proa. We begin to see exactly how precise he's meaning to be about that. Because I have to admit, at first glance, I don't even see a problem, right? It's like, great, reconstruct it. How hard is that, right? Yeah, sure. He already said the Valar can, like, they can totally do really detailed stuff, right? Um, they can they can they can whip up a body to any specifications. They do have to know the specs, right? And that's important. But they can get the specs. They can read it in the imprint that's there in the naked fea. So no problem. Um, they can get the specs. They've got the tools. They've got the know-how. They can put it back together again. Um, uh, no problem, right? So part of me, when I was reading this, part of me was like, what? Why? Why are we talking about this? This doesn't seem hard. 
they whip up a new body. Wherein lies the problem? Well, let's look at where the problem is, because we see Tolkien thinking through this in much detail, right? Um, but the lore masters tell us that they may be in themselves not wholly and exactly equivalent. Some of the lore masters hold that, so that the two bodies, that is, the reconstructed body and the original body, even if you're following the specs. Some of the lore masters hold that the substance of Arda, or indeed of all Ea, was in the beginning one thing, the Erma. So we're talking about matter here, right? But not since the beginning has it remained one and the same, alike and equivalent in all times and places. So there was a uniformity to Erma at the beginning, to matter at the beginning. But when the sequence of time began, the matter of Ea began to diversify. Stuff happens to it. It changes. And it is no longer one and the same alike and equivalent in all times and places. In the first shapings, this primary substance or erma became varied and divided into many secondary materials or nasi, which these are so the Quenya terms, of course, that he's introducing here, which have within themselves various patterns whereby they differ one from another inwardly and outwardly have different virtues and effects. Okay, okay. I'm trying to gloss this kind of sentence by sentence because it's a lot. So, you're the Valar. You're shaping the world. First, you start with substance, uniform substance. It's all the same, and it doesn't have any shape. It's all the same, alike and equivalent in all times and places, this primary substance or erma. What do you do? You're, you're trying to make a world. I know you're trying to make more than we're trying to make a whole solar system and a whole galaxy, but let's just deal with the world. You're trying to make a world. What's step one, right? If you're, you know, writing a set of fold-out instructions for how to, how to make the world, right? What's step one? Step one, well, you've got all this homogeneous matter, erma, right? Well, that's not going to do you, I mean, it's, the raw material, it's what you start with, right? But the very first thing you need is you need to divide it into many secondary materials, right? Because if you don't have different materials, you got nothing to work with, right? So the very first thing you do is you take the homogeneous erma and you make it into different nasi, things like, you know, water, minerals, air, right? Like just, it needs different virtues and effects, different properties. Virtue means uh, powers, like what it can, stuff it can do. That's what virtue means, right? Um, it, it has different virtues and effects. So, you know, air is more buoyant, right? Uh, you know, lead less so, right? Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, lead has other, uh, you know, virtues and effects on things and, and, and water others. And, um, you know, so you need, um, you need to have a diversity of raw materials, which you can combine in different ways in order to make stuff, right? But all of this stuff comes from the Erma originally. So for you start off with that, that homogeneous Erma, right? But then you have to give to it 
different virtues and effects. So how do you do that? What's that process look like? Well, this is where he introduces this idea of patterns. Each nasi, each secondary material has within itself a pattern whereby it differs one from another. So what's the difference between air and lead? Well, you know, organizational principle, basically, right? Same stuff, um, but uh, organized differently. This, of course, is something that we would um, um, uh, this is one of those uh, uh, one of those things that we would say um, that we would actually kind of relate to most of us uh, from a not quite modern scientific perspective. I say not quite modern because like if you know anything about quantum physics, you know that none of this is actually true. But most of us still think in terms of pre-quantum physics. Uh, that is, we think about stuff all being made of electrons and protons, right? A certain number of electrons, certain number of protons organized in, in particular ways, right? Um, and you change the way that they're organized and you change it from one element to another and everything. And it's um, like, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here, right? That's not his vocabulary. So I'm not gonna use that vocabulary all the way through, but that's the kind of thing we say, you know, what's the difference between a, an atom of lead and an, and an atom of hydrogen, right? Well, same stuff organized differently, right? Um, and the difference in organization, the difference in the pattern that they have produces different virtues and effects, right? Same stuff organized differently. Again, uh, not, uh, uh, not quantum there. Okay. Um, all right. Let's pause there. Looks like my internet is uh, not being happy again. So I'm going to pause while I'm well, not ahead, but before I get further behind, we'll pick up here next time with our raw materials and how we're shaping the raw materials. I think we're off to a good start in understanding this. Um, this is uh, wild stuff. So more on the reconstruction challenges next time and what it tells us about how the world works in Tolkien's imagination. Really, um, really deep stuff Tolkien is working with here. So Thanks very much for joining me today. We'll, we'll, we'll finish this stuff next time and then we'll get through, um, I, I plan to get through the last two little chapters and we will totally finish part two next time. It's gonna happen and it's gonna be awesome. So part two, I, I, I have no uh, aspirations of part three uh, next week. This stuff is gonna be plenty to discuss. <laughs> we'll be lucky to finish chapter 15 next week. Um, anyway, thanks everybody. I will talk to you guys. Uh, I'll see you guys next week uh, to finish this up. Bye now.